Well, good evening, Praxis. I hope you, all of you can uh, hear me uh, right now. Hope all of you are well and uh, able to enjoy uh, your Thanksgiving week uh, off, uh, for some of you at least, uh, just, and just having a Thanksgiving. I know despite, you know, it probably didn't look like anything like before in, in past years and probably what you imagined. Uh, nevertheless, I hope it was, a, it was a blessed time for you. I know for myself, uh, instead of prime rib, we had a select rib roast because, um, yeah, just tough times for 2020. So I uh, wasn't able to get the good stuff. So it was basically chewy and not tender. Uh, but I'm still thankful to have beef over turkey as well, as well as spend time with my immediate family. And I hope some of you were able to do that as well. I'm also thankful to see all your faces on Zoom tonight for Praxis and that you're able to, to join us. And in fact, I'm trying to put all of you guys on gallery mode, not that it maybe it makes a difference on your end, uh, but I get to see more faces. Um, but yeah, it's such a great uh, joy to see all of you uh, tonight. Uh, we're gonna be continuing our series in the book of Malachi uh, this evening. Uh, so if you would, uh, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi chapter three, and as we're in chapter three, we're going to be looking specifically at verses 13 to 18 tonight. So I'll go ahead and read our passage and then open our time with prayer. Malachi chapter three, verses 13 uh, to 18. Reading from the ESV. Verse 13 reads, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, just thank you for just this evening. Uh, for those gathered, uh, we're thankful to just be in your word, Lord, uh, this evening. And I pray that you would just bless this time. We pray uh, just your spirit uh, upon us and, and within us, Lord, that um, you would just uh, illuminate the truth, Lord, and just bring about and bear conviction in our hearts, Lord, uh, as we seek to remain uh, faithful, Lord, and to uh, continue to pursue, pursue righteousness, Lord. Uh, even in the midst of adverse or difficult circumstances, Lord, or when chaos uh, seems uh, to be prevalent in the world, Lord, that we can still uh, bank and put our trust and faith in you, Lord. So help us now in Christ, and we pray. Amen. I'd like for you to use your sanctified, not so sanctified imagination for a minute, and imagine that you're in my shoes as a teenager watching a sad love story unfold in what's popularly known today as a, a K-drama or Korean drama. Uh, this drama begins with two baby girls who are in the hospital who are accidentally switched at birth. And as a result of this, they live with different families. And one initially leads a, lives a happy life with her non-biological family. 
But however, as a young girl, a blood test was conducted so that she could receive a needed blood transfusion after being hit by a truck while biking home after school. And so this blood test finally reveals uh, the hospital's error and news was relayed to the girls' families. And because of that, the two girls eventually returned to their original birth parents, you know, their blood parents, as they felt that was the right thing to do. The girl that was once living a happy life before is now living a life of abject poverty with only her biological mother because her true biological father had already died. And long story short, this girl living in poverty has a pretty tough life and is treated poorly by others. As if this series of unfortunate events couldn't get any worse as a grown woman, she now discovers she has leukemia, the same condition that killed her biological father whom she never got to meet. Now it's apparent now uh, at this point that this is no Cinderella story, but get this, she even falls into a coma. And when she wakes up from her coma, the doctors determine she's now too weak to follow through with treatment as her cancer is now terminal. Surprisingly, her love interest proposes to her even though they both know they don't have much time to spend with each other as a married couple due to her illness. They eventually do get married, but soon after, she dies during this dramatic scene where she's being carried on the back of her husband as he walks and bears her weight on the shores of the beach as they enjoy the sunset together. Before she dies and breathes her last breath, she tells her husband to, to move on, continue living. And after her death and funeral, her grieving husband, now turned widower, is dazed and in mourning over her death. And shortly after, a scene is shown where he's crossing the very same street where his late wife was hit by a truck as a young girl. And guess what? He gets struck by a large truck that sends him flying. End of drama, roll the credits, an emotional soundtrack, the end. And I think that if you were to invest the time in watching a show like this, you would be appalled or shocked with the ridiculous ending. It just wouldn't sit well with you. You may be used to abrupt endings in, in, in shows that you watch, but you also want things to be resolved. You don't want to be left hanging like that. You don't want, to, you want, you don't want things to just end that way. And because of this drama, I actually quit watching K-dramas altogether for many years and went on a long hiatus. Why? because I felt it wasn't worth my time to watch these ridiculous reused tropes and storylines with unresolved endings. There was no point in devoting my time in watching, knowing how the dramas will likely end in death and sorrow. And in a similar way, all of us want to know whether it's worth our time and effort to be devoted to something or someone. We wanna know whether or not it's gonna pay off, whether or not it's gonna end favorably for us. As we turn our attention to the book of Malachi, we see God's covenant people asking that very same question. They had asked that question for themselves and determined in their minds, at least, that it simply just doesn't pay to be committed to God. It simply just doesn't pay out in the long run to pursue righteousness. It just, it's just not worth it. There's no point. And this is the latest beef the covenant people have with God. Throughout the book of Malachi, we have come to realize that what we're dealing with here are people who question God's love for them. 
They, they're, they're heartless in their worship. They're, they're faithless in their marriage and spiritual community, the relationships within that community. And, and, and pretty much sick and tired of God's ways and sick and tired of God's timing of justice. They even rob God through their lack of stewardship over the resources God had blessed them with. And now their religious faith and pursuit of righteousness just wasn't worth it anymore. And this is a cynical attitude and behavior that believes it's just not worth it. What's the benefit? And, but, but this is not just a problem of old. This, this wasn't just an issue that existed within a small vacuum of time in Malachi's day. No, this type of cynical attitude exists in our hearts today as well. So it would serve us well to consider the words of Malachi now, for it allows us to consider the ways where we too as Christians might find ourselves adopting this cynical attitude that leads to a, a, to a life of a devoid of any commitment and wholehearted service to God. And wholehearted service to God always entails the pursuit of righteousness. As God's, God's covenant people, they were called to pursue the character of God and they were called to desire holiness, just as believers today are to pursue the character of Christ and desire holiness. Which brings us to our key idea for tonight. Our pursuit of righteousness must not be based on our own circumstances or others' circumstances, but in God's promises. So with that in mind, we begin with the first point of our passage this evening. The perspective of the unrighteous in verses 13 to 15. Uh, Malachi draws to the surface the callous hearts of the people and, when, and how they treat God. In verse 13, it reads, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Uh, the word for hard here, used in the ESV, is translated as, as, as arrogant in the NASB. And really, this is to point out the fact that their, their, their words of accusation were, were harsh. They're, they're, they're strong in their tone. Uh, these are severe accusations. Uh, this was a lot more hostile than earlier when we read in the past in chapter 2, verse 17, where they're complaining words about God's justice wearied him. And they really thought that they, they knew better than God to speak such bold words that go against his character and who he truly is. The response shows that they still, in their hearts, deny the charges that were levied against them by the Lord. Their surprised reaction to these charges just shows the depth of their indifference towards God's word, towards the words of the Lord. So Malachi presents the incriminating evidence that exposed the actions and motives of the people for what it is. What was a claim against them? It was how they viewed their service to God. Verse 14 reads, you have said it is vain to serve God. What they primarily meant, as the word vain suggests, is that serving God is vanity. It is empty and it is useless. And they became convinced that service to God wasn't something they ought to give further attention to. Uh, don't, don't worry about it. Uh, don't overthink it. You know, why devote themselves to something that, according to them, didn't serve any purpose? And this is the predominant attitude in God's covenant people that Malachi confronts them for. But first, let's keep in mind the context of their lives at that time. 
you know, it's it's true that life wasn't always characterized by sunny days and, and green pastures. The Babylonian captivity was over. And at one point you could say that they really banked their hopes that after captivity, they would return to their land and finally rebuild their lives and, and get some kind of semblance of the, the, the past, maybe the, the glory days in Solomon's day under his reign as a king. They would have hoped that the temple would be rebuilt and, and, re, and remember God's past and present faithfulness for his people. They would have hoped that the prophetic oracles of the prophets would have come true and their Messiah would come and reign over a unified kingdom of Israel and Judah together rather than being divided and that the new Jerusalem would be established amongst other nations. But instead, what actually happens after the exile? The people return to their land and they continue to live corruptly. They were just as unfaithful as the generations before them. The renewal of the covenant after the exile, as recorded in Nehemiah 8 through 10, was past history, old news to be forgotten. There was no, now no benefit to serving God. But what exactly were God's covenant people thinking in claiming that serving God was vain? What was their line of reasoning or their rationale that ultimately led to their own self-deception? Malachi tells us in verse 14, what is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? They had unrighteous views of serving. One, what is the profit of keeping his charge? The first line of unrighteous reasoning that led to their self-deception was that there's no profit for obeying God. In other words, there's no gain for living righteously. You see, serving God wasn't merely external acts one would do to check off a box like, giving offerings or tithes or attending the temple to worship God back in their day. Rather, serving God described as keeping his charge, which they should have understood as obedience to all that God commanded. But they didn't see the gain or profit in that. They were anticipating or expecting the, their cut or their percentage if they were going to worship God wholeheartedly, right? Rather, serving God is described as keeping his charge, which they should have done. You know, years ago, when I took a, my first business uh, class in, in college, there was a particular key learning objective that I remember, you know, repeated over and over during lectures. When reading class textbooks, uh, being tested for my understanding for the final exam, and the key concept that I learned based on this economic theory uh, was this, that the primary purpose, the primary purpose of a business is to maximize profits. But you know what? This profit wasn't only a measure of self-perceived benefit. You see, making a profit in business isn't necessarily a bad thing. I, I mean, if you don't make a profit, you go out of business in the long run. But when the Bible uses the word gain, it's often used in a negative context with motives of, of greed, dis, dishonest gain by, by taking advantage or cheating others, right? That kind of profit. In Malachi's day, the covenant people understood their quote unquote faith in God like a transaction for personal gain and benefit. The religion just wasn't paying off now. In other words, why be devoted when, don't, when things don't seem to pan out in your life? Why should you commit to righteous living when it doesn't seem to pay off and maximize your goals in life? And really, this stems from a wrong heart attitude that only strives to put forth, put forth effort, put forth discipline, 
in pursuing holiness if God will do them a favor. They would only serve God and live righteously insofar as they receive and experience the benefits they thought they would get by identifying themselves as God's covenant people. But because it didn't seem like their investment now in God was panning out or giving a rate of return that they expect, why bother? Their self-deception was that it was okay. It was okay to view their relationship with God like a transaction where devotion and righteous living is contingent on potential profit, self-profit. And the danger for us as Christians today is for us to have the same type of cynicism that the people in Malachi's day had. To treat our relationship with God like a transaction where we'll put in more, we'll give more attention to serving God with all of our hearts, our, our, our mind, our soul, strength. When it seems God's going to do something for me or give me something I want, and we can be like, I've been following God for, for so many years. What, what, what's, what difference does, does it make? What's there to, to gain from continuing to persevere, grow my faith and obedience to God? It seems that I've just had uh, to say no to a bunch of other things in life because of it. I'm still not married or in a relationship yet. I, I haven't been able to, to get out of my current job or position, or I haven't been able to find a job yet. I haven't or probably won't receive fill in the blank. Therefore, what's the point? It would serve our hearts well to examine whether we too complain with our words and our attitude. How we might act in a, in a way that only sees God, only sees God as worthy of, of, faith, of faithful obedience when it seems we're going to get something that we desire. In practice, this is something that we must consider for our own lives here today. This isn't just a message for Malachi's day, but also for those who would identify themselves as God's people today. Because there are many Christians today, and possibly even uh, in your respective room, who serve over on the Zoom call right now, who serve and worship God only when it's convenient. There are Christians today who will only obey or give the outward appearance of obedience, you know, or, or church practice or tradition, right? If it will help them be accepted, if it will help them be perceived to be more spiritual, if it will help them to, to gain a position maybe in, in leadership or a position of service in the church that garners more attention of others. There are those who, who, whose love for God and his church is not about sacrificially serving and caring for others, but coming to church or fellowship group asking, what's in it for me? Will I be able to, to make friends? But look, I'm not saying all of these things are, are bad, like seeking friends, community, and the church family. Those are all great things. Those are blessings, and, and those are things that you should be seeking. But if that is our, our, our view of obedience, of what we can get out of it, our approach to, to, to church ministry, to coming to church, to, to loving and caring for others, then we've missed it. And before we excuse ourselves from thinking through this matter and thinking it's settled already, Malachi continues. The second line of unrighteous reasoning that Malachi confronts God's people on is this, that they think that even those who attempt to worship and obey God by walking before God don't receive any benefit. 
So in, in Malachi's day, uh, there were some who, who did walk and mourn before the Lord. Uh, mourning was usually associated with dark clothing or blackening your faces, you know, kind of like, I don't know, was, was it Ash Wednesday if, if you're a like Roman Catholic or something? A mourning was associated with this dark clothing, blackening their faces, basically to, to convey, to symbolize their grief and sorrow for sin and the unfortunate circumstances of their people as a nation in Israel's day, at least. But this whole act wasn't genuine because they put stock and value in the act itself, even though they lacked any genuine devotion to God from the heart. It was purely a public display for people to see with the intent and expectation that it would attract and win God's favor or bring about the idols of their heart, right? And seen in this manner, we learn that there are those in Malachi's day that performed outwardly in their practice, as well as outward disciplines of spiritual life, but it was devoid from the heart. And this too was seen as, as pointless in their eyes and it didn't make a difference, which led them all together to abandon their faithful devotion to God. It is at this point that Malachi reviews some of the harshest words the people grumble and accuse God of. Verse 15 reads, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Their reasoning was that it's the prideful ones in this world that are built up and established. It's the prideful and boastful who succeed and are blessed in life. It's those who think of themselves as being important where everything and everyone revolves around them. Those are the people who are blessed, they would say. The evildoers are the ones who are the ones well off and prospering in life. And not only are they the ones that are well off, the ones who are brazen enough to put God to the test and escape. So in their eyes, the pursuit of righteous living in defiance against God as, as one would shake his fist in the heavens, you know, it, it's not going to lead you to be struck down, so, so they thought. And this underlying aberrant theology they must have had to, to not trust God is, is that God really is weak rather than powerful. That God was too weak to stop them and can't do anything about it. They did not trust in the power of God, that he is sovereign and in control. Why? Because God doesn't care to do anything about evil or wickedness. He's just a distant, far away God. God doesn't care about the distinction between righteous and unrighteous. And it can be tempting to skip and gloss over and say, wow, that's, that's pretty messed up of them. But I couldn't call the, I, I wouldn't call the arrogant blessed. I wouldn't, as a Christian at Lighthouse, say ridiculous things like evildoers prosper and get away with justice. And I hope not. And it is this point that Malachi has laid out and exposed their hearts and the state of, and, and condition of it that he now transitions. We see throughout this series just how dark the state of their lives was and seemingly void of any hope or light at the end of the tunnel leading to what would eventually be 400 years of silence before the entrance of John the Baptist and the arrival of Jesus Christ. They would continue to face hardships both during and after the exile in their lives, right? But as depressing and seemingly hopeless it may sound for God's people in their situation, there is a ray of hope. God takes notice to the feelings and thoughts of the people who who think following God doesn't matter, or fo following God does matter. He takes notice of them. 
And God offers words of hope that's grounded in his promises. Promises for the righteous, which brings us to our second point this evening, God's promise for the righteous in verses 16 to 18. Verse 16 reads, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. While it seems like absolutely everyone in the nation of Israel was in rebellion, we're given this insightful perspective that there actually was a group among the people making up the physical nation that actually did fear the Lord. Here we have faithful followers of God rather than cynical followers. And this faithful group got together and began to talk. They begin to have a dialogue. They converse with one another. Now, we don't know the exact words that were said because the Bible doesn't say, nor does the book of Malachi elsewhere, record the details of what they were talking about with each other. But, but, but that's not really the point. The point here in verse 16 is that God actually does hear them. He really does pay attention. And so then it really does matter that you serve God wholeheartedly. It's not pointless and and really does pay to hear his words and live righteously. And the the verse says that a book of remembrance was written before him. What is a book of remembrance? Uh, Well, here in Malachi, this might be a literal book or scroll that God has, um, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, God knows everything instantly and completely. Uh, He doesn't forget things. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. So this could be God speaking figuratively here. But whether or not there's a giant physical book or it's spoken figuratively here, the idea still stands regardless. Uh, The image that's presented here is that God doesn't forget his people. God doesn't forget his own. We see in scripture examples that when a book is mentioned, there's often a description that this book is, is one where entries are made, right? Sort of like an official record. Back in the days of the, the ancient, ancient East, kings of nations would keep records of those who faithfully served the king so that the servants might be re- rewarded. An example of this is uh, the Persian king, right? Uh, in, the, in the context of the book of Esther. Uh, and so in the book of Esther, you know, you don't have to turn your Bibles there, but basically in the book of Esther, there's a man named Mordecai. And uh, he was recorded in, in, in this book of, of memorable deeds where the king eventually honored him by recognizing his actions. But notice how I said, and you can look for yourself, that I said eventually. See, right after Mordecai did his good deed on behalf of the king, nothing happened, right? But later on, because it was recorded, the king actually did look at the, look at the, 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 the record and was like, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And his attendants were like, uh, nothing's been done yet. And then the king did something about it to recognize Mordecai. So so that's the image that Malachi is trying to get across here, that God sees and God notices. I think the key takeaway for us when we hear that God hears and pays attention to those who fear him is this, that God isn't just some distant or far off God, but he's a God who truly cares about you and is near to you you if you are his, right? If you are his chosen. If you are his people. And this verse serves to encourage any weary believer who might be here tonight to continue to persevere. 
to continue to trust in his promises, to, to, to not give up, right? To not throw in the towel in this spiritual race. You see, this verse serves as a much needed eternal perspective that we are to embrace. That's, that, that's oftentimes put in the peripheries of our vision, right? It's in the blind spot as we drive forward in life, yet lack any sense of awareness of where we're headed and where's God in it. And so if you're discouraged tonight, can I encourage you to trust that God sees and hears and remembers you and that God has not forgotten, no matter what you're going through. A helpful way that we can practically apply this truth in our lives is to consider what God's people did in verse 16. They esteemed his name. That's the disciplined practice of thinking and considering the character of God in all your thinking. Whatever circumstances you might be in, whatever trial you might be in, whatever form of suffering you might be experiencing, like they did. They filtered their thoughts through the lens of God's character. They took inventory, like, well, I have this going on in my life right now that's pretty tough and difficult. But you know what? This is what I know is true about God's character, right? That's specifically about certain promises that God has made, certain characteristics, attributes of God. And that's, that's what it means to esteem his name, to give God's character and his word a preeminence in all of our thinking. And this is a crucial point for you to consider if you find yourself in the midst of difficulties and hardships tonight. Why? Because we're, we're often tempted to, to read God's attitude towards us based on our circumstances, right? Well, God must not like me or treating me this way because this is happening to me right now. When really what we should be doing is realize God's attributes in the midst of our circumstances. And this is also how we think and speak righteously about God rather than cynically judge God because of our bad theology. And speaking of circumstances, it's, it's not as if God is oblivious about who truly fear him or not, right? There's a clear distinction because those who truly fear the Lord tremble at the thought of offending God by their unbelief or by their disobedience. They wouldn't confidently utter from their lips that it doesn't pay to serve God. And now God continues to describe this distinct promise that applies to those who fear and obey him. Look with me now at verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. What we see here is a day of distinction that will be made evident and apparent to all Although in the present, it may not be so visible or clear to us, the day of distinction between the righteous and the wicked speaks of a future outcome for two different groups of people. One's eternal destiny is at stake. God promises a future day when he'll redeem the righteous and that he will also judge the wicked. Those who truly feared the Lord will be vindicated for their faithfulness, for trusting in God by living by faith, right? It is those who truly confess and turn away from their sin. For now, I just want you to consider the idea of a treasured possession for a minute. It's a very important term and idea that Israel was supposed to know and, and consider in their relationship with God, that they were God's treasured possession. And this foundation 
was established all the way back in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, after Israel was delivered from their slavery and their oppression under Pharaoh. Israel had crossed the Red Sea because of God's faithfulness and his provision, and then they camped at the base of Mount Sinai, where Moses went up to Sinai to speak with God. And God had these words for the people of Israel in Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. No harm will come to those who are God's. God will protect them, but he will also make a distinction between those who are his true covenant people, between those who truly obey him and seek to obey him. To be God's treasured possession means you will be his servant, right? Those who are truly God's treasured possession seek to obey his voice. Those who are truly God's treasured possession are also distinctly set apart. Like a king who possesses costly, valuable treasure in his private reserve collection for his, his own purposes. That's true of the people of God. And it's supposed to be true of us that we, we view ourselves in the same way, that we're set apart for his purposes. Worship and devotion reserved to God. Those who are truly God's possession will flee wickedness and serve the Lord. And so Malachi is addressing a specific group within the nation of Israel. It's a remnant, right? It's a subgroup who do not agree that it's vain to serve God, right? They are the true Israel. It's those who fear the Lord that will make up God's treasured possession. And here we see a dividing line that's being drawn on the sand, a definitive demarcation line between those who are righteous and those who are wicked. The righteous fear the Lord, and it will be regarded as God's treasured possession in that future day of the Lord. The righteous who fear him will have a different outcome, proving that cynical attitude that these people, uh, the other people had, professing uh, people, a covenant of God people, uh, was, was baseless. It is the faithful group of God fearers who will be spared from future judgment. And that judgment is briefly described as we come to the end at verse 18. Then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not serve him. The righteous is equated as those who serve God. The wicked are equated with those who don't serve him. And service to God entails worshiping him and living under the authority of, of God's word, right? That's the idea of a servant. You put yourself and submit yourself under the authority of your master. Not just when we feel like it, not just when we feel our hearts are in, in, in it. You see, the world and those who don't fear God and pursue evil or flagrantly parade their heart's idols, they live for the now. They live for the present. And we really shouldn't be surprised if they seem to prosper now, because for them, this truly is their best life now. Because what comes after will be the worst life when they face judgment for rejecting Christ as Lord and Savior and for living for themselves rather than seeking life in Jesus Christ, the one who can give eternal life. But God's people live in light of eternity, right? Who are they? They're God's people, God's chosen, right? 
set apart for good works. We know that Jesus is better now and, and the best is yet to come for those who are in Christ. And so our passage today ought to be a comfort, yet at the same time, a challenge as we seek his face and cling to God's promises when life disappoints us and when life is difficult. It's during times like this praxis that God may seem to have forgotten you in your suffering while others who don't fear him seem to thrive. But know that that truly is not the case, right? In the grand scheme of things. The Lord knows, the Lord hears, and the Lord desires for you to find comfort in the grace of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, the Lord calls us to examine ourselves as well. For God takes note of those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, not only with their lips, but those whose hearts are near to him. 